may God and anime give me strength, this is gonna be bad. Welcome to Pros and Cons, a Riverdale tie-in novel discussion podcast that I just now realize is a waste of a perfectly good true crime novel review podcast title. I am, of course, Rob, and I welcome you to join me on this surreal death march into YA fiction hell. The first novel that we're going to tackle here is appropriately enough, the first of these wretched travesties of Pulp, Ink, and Signifier. This is Riverdale, The Day Before, by Mikol Ostow. An important note about Mikol Ostow is that she is writing a bunch, apparently, of these Riverdale tie-in novels, and given the pace of release of the first three, it appears that she does one every five months. It's quite possible that that's not even close to the only thing she's writing during this time as well. So, gird your loins. Rather than the traditional river do's and river don'ts format, for pros and cons, I'm going to just go through my observations of the horrors that I witness as I work my way through this book. I'm covering the prologue because, yes, there's a fucking prologue in this little YA Riverdale tie-in book feel like Nicole Ostow is getting a little uppity. I'm going to go through the prologue and the first two chapters, which takes us about 10% into the book. I assume that subsequent episodes where I do about three chapters will take us through a larger number of pages because the prologue is pretty short. But that is essentially the format that I'm going to be going with here. And I'm just going to sort of summarize play by play a bit what happens and point out some of the really amazing things that I encounter along the way. Uh, I can see no justification in preambling any further, though, so I'm really going to have to just plug my nose and jump into this thing. We start, as I warned, with a prologue. And appropriately enough, this is a Jughead monologue. The chapters, as well as the prologue, are labeled with POV character names. So we're starting off with Jughead. And he's running down his standard nice town with bad evil secrets shtick. Really, it's like kind of a canned WWE promo that Jughead has at this point. It is important to note, though, that there's something a little different about Jughead's voice in this, ooh, our town is actually a problem. There's about a, I counted, I'm not afraid to admit, I counted the words on the first page, which has about half a page of white space and 150 words on it. In those 150 words, there are four different pop culture slash literary references, all of questionable applicability to the teen demographic that Riverdale at least ostensibly is watched by. Uh, I would assume most of the non-ironic watching of it is done in that age group, but here we go. I'm going to break this down for you. Jughead references The Chronicles of Narnia, The Myth of Pandora, The Films of David Lynch, and the paintings of Norman Rockwell, all in an effort to paint a picture of this, ooh, it's really spooky, actually, underneath the surface kind of thing. This is exactly the monologue from the first episode of Riverdale, except, uh, worse, I guess. 
Oh, God, and that reminds me. There's something very important to point out about this book. It's a fucking prequel. This book takes place before the first season of Riverdale begins. So it immediately suffers from prequelitis, where we know what the stage is going to be set like by the book's end, because we've seen it already. Uh, and so there can't be any real surprises, and there's a lot of pressure to not rock the boat and not do anything particularly interesting, because you can't change the status quo in any way. Uh, now, because Riverdale is so cavalier about character development and like plot consistency and any of that other shit, who knows? Maybe if this is accurate to the show, we're going to see some wild shit in this book, so look forward to that, hopefully. Jughead is basically not happy at this point about how boring this summer is because Archie is more or less not paying any attention to him. Betty's off in L.A. doing an internship. And he's so lonely. He's so lonely, you guys. It's like he's not a real person. But wait, there's actually more literary references, or in this case, a film reference. Uh, he compares Polly... Cooper and Jason Blossom's breakup to the 1989 film The War of the Roses uh which okay maybe he's into old movies he works at a drive-in at this point it's just the breadth and sort of scattershotness of the references is really mind-boggling but actually what's funny is that is show accurate because just these sort of vaguely inappropriate or like weird references to things that may not have much of a resonance with the teen audience like that's Riverdale to a T isn't it Jughead runs down some Riverdale traditions as part of his examination of the town and he mentions one tradition that is very worthy of note not as much because of what it is although it's weird but the way that he talks about it the midnight pancake banquet which is a thing that happens in late winter in riverdale people eat pancakes at midnight as a group activity uh and he waxes a bit rhapsodic about something being kind of threatening about the midnight pancake banquet apparently this is a very scary event it's kind of unclear, but he mentions this pancake banquet held in winter, and he describes the scene in vivid detail, and I quote, Frost lacing the town hall windows, and vapor curling from our mouths when, if, we dare to step outside. So apparently this pancake banquet is the site of, like, particular horror. You go inside, it's midnight, you're eating your pancakes with copious maple syrup, and it is a horrifying prospect to go outside. Like, something is, something is out there, and it wants you. God, this book is going to kill me. We're literally on the first page. We're on the first page. Okay, it has to go faster than this. Jesus Christ. Jughead's favorite Riverdale tradition, which I'm not sure we ever hear about in the show, um, let me know, I guess, if this is a thing from the show, is a July 4th Summerfest carnival. Uh, so yeah, at me if this is actually a thing from the show and I've just like forgotten it with all the brain damage that I've suffered in the course of Riverdews and Riverdones. 
Anyway, this year the traditional crew of Jughead, Betty, and Archie have missed the event, or are rather imminently going to miss the event. Because Betty, again, is doing a writing internship in LA for a company called Hello Giggles, which immediately I twigged to like, wait a minute, that's not like a stupid one letter or one phoneme changed brand name. So that's not a Riverdale tradition. Maybe Hello Giggles is real. And I looked it up, and according to my research, this is actually a real lifestyle website launched by actress Zoe Deschanel in May 2011. So apparently, not only are we abandoning the silly Riverdale brand name convention thing, which is a little disappointing, I also think McCall is just daring time the company that owns Hello Giggles to give a shit about her book. Like, yeah, what are you going to do? Anyway, Archie is busy doing construction work with his dad, or so we think. Leaving Jughead alone, once again so alone. The journal entry, monologue, or whatever it is, ends, in fine Jughead Jones fashion, with an observation about how good he is at observation, and a bleak, portentous announcement about how doomed and horrific the future was for our young heroes who didn't even know how bad things were about to get, you guys! And that's our prologue. We then transition into part one, morning. Which means to me that the day before is quite literal. Like, this is the day before the first shot of the Riverdale TV show, and we're just doing a whole book during one day. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. We get an email! Like, just a primary document. Hmm. Uh, it is from Dilton Doily, uh, gun nut, weird, violence, pervert, scoutmaster Dilton Doily, to his adventure scouts discussing what supplies they'll need for their camping trip and what activities are planned. And let me just tell you, if this whole book is epistolary, I'm going to lose my shit. Like, the prologue was ambiguous. Was it something he wrote down somewhere? We know he writes constantly, and we know his writing is very self-indulgent. It could be. And my suspicions are deepened by what comes next, which is a text message exchange between Cheryl and Jason Blossom, revealing that their father is quite cross with young Jason. Which, of course, we know ends quite poorly in the show. We then move to chapter one. And it's a diary entry from Betty. Oh my god. This is happening. They're really gonna make an epistolary Riverdale novel. Oh shit! Betty misses Riverdale and her friends. But she loves L.A. It's so, so cool. Despite her boss, uh, features editor Rebecca Santos, not letting her do any real writing at her internship and is basically just sending her out for coffee and food and stuff all the time. I said we're not doing the River Do's and River Don'ts format, but I'm going to just say that if there was a Weekly Weird, what happens next is 100% the Weekly Weird. There's a fucking text message exchange between Polly and Betty... It just jams itself in between paragraphs. This is a diary entry from Betty, and there is a text message exchange that just happens on the page. What the fuck are we to make of this, folks? Does this mean that Betty 
transcribes text messages into her journal in the middle of a thought? Does she fucking color in the speech bubbles and label them with names? Because that's how it's printed in the book. It's like a phone interface. Text messages. Right in the middle of a written diary entry. Wow. This is my favorite book. Anyway, Polly wants to know about, quote, Rad Brad, a guy that Betty met on the job. He apparently is a surfer-type guy who she met who knows right off the top of his head the tone and content of Toni Morrison's novel The Bluest Eye, which is what Betty is rereading for fun while out getting food for her boss. You know, a book published in 1970 often found itself on the chopping block of potential banning due to topics of racism, incest, and child molestation. You know, the kind of book that teenagers would definitely read in line for Rock Shrimp Tempura in 2017. I guess we could say that Betty's darkness extends to her taste in books, and that the sort of, like, style of unearned gravitas of reference that we often saw in the show is really accurate in his depiction of this book. <laughs> Next, we are treated to an email from Josie of And the Pussycats fame to the rest of the band. They are preparing for a show where they will be performing, or dare I say, performing at the Town Hall Square imminently. I do apologize for the pun. I'm a bad man. We learn two very important things from this email, which would on its surface appear to just be them getting ready to play a show. One important detail is that Jughead set up an annual screening of Independence Day at the Twilight Drive-In, which Josie suspects is an attempt at irony. So Jughead does this shit every year. And I don't know if Josie or Jughead know what irony is, but I do 100% believe Jughead would do that and think that it was very smart. <sighs> the other important thing is that her sign-off line is not sincerely. It is not love. It is not yours truly. Anything like that. Josie's email is signed off with the line, Hugs and hisses. Which is the fucking best. Chapter 2! Jughead, again, is our POV. He describes his trailer as, and I quote, squalor chic. And between the constant references to books and movies and stuff on the part of both him and Betty, and shit like this, squalor chic, I think that the author's character make reference machine got stuck on the Veronica setting. Uh, we're really looking at Two non-Veronica characters with extremely Veronica voices, which is probably just the easiest voice to copy because it's so heightened and distinct in the show. Uh, and, you know, you're writing these books real fast. You've probably got other shit to do. But it leaves me imagining a horrific uh, Dr. Brundle teleportation machine accident involving much of Riverdale's main cast. <sighs> Anyway, I should talk about what he's actually talking about in this chapter and not just my slowly disintegrating mind. Jughead gets us caught up on the crumbling marriage between FP and uh, whoever Jones's mom is. I don't remember her name. And tells us about his mom taking the younger sister, Jellybean, and leaving. Uh, between this happening, Betty being away and Archie never being around, 
as we said before. Jughead is decidedly emo. Uh, He also suspects that Archie is absolutely not just actually that busy with construction work. um, And that there has to be something else going on with him. Which, oh god. Of course I've seen the show. I am... Very not excited to revisit this particular plotline, but I must, I must clothe myself in my battle raiment and soldier on. He wants to go find his dad, who's likely on a bender, make sure he's okay, and he also wants to find Archie, to have him say to his face why they aren't going to the Centerville fireworks show, which this whole like, oh, you have to tell me to my face why we're not doing some casual friend get-together is an extremely jughead move. He goes by the Andrews place and sees that Fred Andrews' truck is home, but that Archie isn't in his room, which apparently is always curtainless, as often is the case in the show when Archie doesn't feel like shirts. Given Archie isn't answering any texts, he's either out somewhere or very aggressively ghosting Jughead, and the worry deepens. As Jughead makes it over to Pops, he casually observes that Sartre once said, Hell is other people. Thank you, Jughead. <laughs> uh... He recounts the last time he saw Archie in person, which was in fact at Pop's diner. That particular night, Pop was giving Jughead some shit about spending too much time holed up with his laptop grinding away on that writing, warning that he would end up like that guy from The Shining or worse, which had better be unattributed dialogue. There are no quotation marks, and there is no fucking way that Jughead doesn't know who Jack Torrance is. Also, that's a pretty dark place to go with your joke, Pop. Like, Pop Tate, come on. Yeah, you'll probably try to murder your family. Or worse. Um, I mean, this is, of course, still from the man who thought nothing of burning teenagers alive with Molotov cocktails at the end of season two, however, and recommended that teen boys in his diner do so, like go burn those other children. So our theory from Riverdews and Riverdones that he's not opposed to guns because of their capacity for violence, but because the simple violence of guns is too quick and too uncomplicated to get him off anymore. That's, I think that's holding up in, in this reading of this book as well. Archie comes in, and there's some awkwardness, and Jughead is made doubly sure that Archie is mixed up in something. Uh, He suggests that they go to the Centerville fireworks, and Archie surprises him by actually agreeing, yeah, hey, that sounds good, let's go. Jughead signs off with some more ominous vagueness about the future in his narration. Uh, We then close the chapter with another intrusive primary document, and this is... This is a Sweetwater River fishing report for July 4th from the mayor's office in conjunction with Town Parks and Recreation. And this is a full page of gratuitous detail that I just, like, I can't, I just can't understand what it's for. It just has, I'm gonna look, one second, I'm sorry, I'm gonna look this up and, and like, Water flow, visibility, water temperature at midday, water condition, best time of day to fish, best stretch, best access point, fish species, fishing season, recommended fly fishing tippet, best fly fishing rod, best floating fly line, best sinking fly line, crucial plot 
information critical to the mystery later on i'm sure it is baffling to me that this is in here uh, and is another weekly weird worthy moment and that's the end of chapter two uh, and uh, it's so weird jughead is emo veronica betty is small town girl in la veronica and archie hasn't had any pov yet we by the way are over 10 percent in to the page count of the book and we have absolutely no plot Nothing has occurred, plot-wise, aside from arguably Jughead wondering what's wrong with Archie. It does not bode well. But stay tuned for next time, folks, because chapter three is a Veronica chapter.